Good morning. It's great to be with you uh, this morning and share God's Word with you. If you've got a Bible, would you like to open it at Ephesians chapter 1? I think the last time I was here, uh, I preached in uh, verses 1 to 14. Uh, but this morning we're in verses 15 uh, to 23, the second half uh, of chapter 1. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray before we look at this. Father, we come before you as uh, broken, sinful people who need uh, your life-given word So, Father, as we look at this passage this morning, we pray that you'd open our eyes, that we may know you better. Father, we pray all these things and ask that Christ may be glorified in everything that is said and done here. In his name we pray. Amen. Do you remember the story in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, of the the blind man? Mark tells us about uh, how some people brought a blind man to Jesus and asked him to touch the man and heal his blindness, and Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And Jesus spat in his eyes and laid his hands on them. And he asked, Do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his, eyes, his hands on eyes, his eyes again, and the man opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Well, in the second half, of chapter 1 of Ephesians that we're looking at this morning. This is exactly what Paul wants for his readers. He wants them to see more clearly. He wants them to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they may see clearly some very significant and true realities. Because like this man Jesus healed, sometimes we can have blood vision. Sometimes and quite often we struggle to see how things really are. We struggle to see past what is right in front of us, the physical of here and now, which quite a lot of the time ends up with us feeling discouraged, down and disheartened because things don't often look too good, do they? Remember the context the Ephesian churches are in, they were in uh, Artemis. Artemis was the the biggest idol in uh, Ephesus. They are in Artemis' playground in Artemis' territory, surrounded by this massive idol who was worshipped by most of the people in Ephesus and even further abroad. 
She had a massive influence in the area. She was constantly looming over them in the background and always in the back of the Ephesians' minds and in their faces. Every street they turned into, there would be something associated with her. She would be the talk of the town and in most households. So no wonder they probably felt intimidated by her, feeling weak and inferior, constantly reminded that in comparison to her and the massive community that followed her and worshipped her, they were small, insignificant and weak. In Ephesus, it seemed she had the most strength, might, power, influence and authority over the people in every sense. Artemis was the big deal, was the big name and was the big influence. Just imagine how small and insignificant the church in Ephesus would have felt. Maybe we don't need to imagine because quite a lot of the time we can feel small, insignificant and weak as well, can't we? When we look at ourselves as Christians and when we look at how church is going in comparison to the big and impressive and significant things in the world, it doesn't always look as if it's going too well, does it? I certainly feel that way as a Christian most of the time and I'm pretty sure you do too. But again, just as in the first half of the chapter, so here Paul's prayer takes the reader's eyes off the visible realities, how things look on the surface to the invisible realities, to how things really are. What Paul wants his friends to see clearly and realise more fully from his prayer is the hope to which the church and they being part of the church through their union with Christ have been called to. And what Paul prays is that they will know and grasp more firmly and fully these invisible realities. His prayer is that they would basically know God better because he knows if they're going to persevere and keep going on trusting in Christ, then this is what they will need to know and keep on praying that they will know. And so this prayer takes our eyes off how things look to the naked eye, to how things really are in the heavenly places in the unseen realm. So in verses 1 to 14, we see the many blessings that we've received in Christ. God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. We have been united to Jesus by faith, been personally joined to him, which means we have a real union with him in the same uh, way that marriage is a union. And through that union, we have received all the blessings of Christ. We are part of God's eternal plans and purposes, verse 10. And now in light of God's plan for the universe, we see Paul's prayer. John Stott said, what Paul does in Ephesians 1 and encourages us to copy is both to keep praising God that in Christ all spiritual blessings are ours and to keep praying that we may know the fullness of what he has given us. So let's look at Paul's prayer together then and see why he prays for the Ephesians and what he prays for them. Well, firstly, in verses 15 and 16, we see why Paul is praying for them. Now, there's nothing more encouraging, I don't think, than to hear, I'm praying for you and continue to pray for you. In the church I was brought up in, just in the road in Airdrie Ebenezer, there was a, an amazing uh, older couple there who are just great. They were really supportive uh, of me over the last few years when I was at uh, Bible College and I went to visit them one day at their house to catch up with them and I left that day really really encouraged as I was leaving they told me that as I was walking out the door they told me that they pray for me 
every morning. It was so encouraging to hear. It lifted me up and encouraged me and strengthened me for that day to keep going. Well, we see here in verses 15 and 16 that Paul prays constantly for his friends in Ephesus. How encouraging for them to hear that Paul, the apostle, was praying for them. And he tells them why he's praying for them. He prays for them because he knows for certain that they are true believers and God has started his good work in them. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. In light of all the many blessings he's already said these believers have been given in Christ. In verses 3 to 14, Paul now goes on to pray for them because he sees the evidence of those many blessings in their lives and gives thanks to God for them. So firstly, he prays because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They know, believe and trust in Jesus as their saviour. When they first heard the gospel, probably from Paul himself while he was in Ephesus, this is what they did. They believed and trusted in Jesus and started to know him and have a relationship with him and they were united to him. They banked everything on Jesus. They put their whole weight upon him and totally depended on him for salvation. Just like you have faith in the seat that you're sitting on at this very moment, you have faith that the seat that you are sitting on at this very moment is able to keep you from falling on the floor and hunting yourself. You trust it to take your whole weight. None of you walked in before the service and before you sat down, doubted that the seat you were about to sit on wouldn't hold your weight, did you? But if you did and you decided to try and sit in the sitting position without the seat, do you think you'd have lasted very long? You wouldn't, wouldn't you? Well, to think that we can stand before God without Jesus is exactly the same. Faith in the Lord Jesus means not trusting in yourself or anything else, but it's wholly trusting in Jesus, putting everything on him. There's a hymn which says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. That's what faith in the Lord Jesus Christ means. And that's what the Ephesian believers had. Friends, let me ask you this morning, where is your trust and faith? Is it built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Or is it in something which will fail and not hold you up before the righteousness of God? Well, the second reason Paul prays for his friends is not only for the faith in Jesus, but also for the love for the brothers. Now, love for the brothers and sisters of the body of Christ is one, or should be one, of the most distinguishing marks of a believer. 1 John constantly talks about this love for the brothers as a mark of belonging to God. In chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, in 1 John he writes, Whoever says he is in light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. He goes on to say in chapter 3, For this is a message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And this is how you know if you have passed from death to life, because we love the brothers. The believer loves because the love of God has been shown to him by God sending his son Jesus into the world to die for them and to take upon himself the wrath that they deserve. If you say you're a Christian here this morning, 
and believe in the Lord Jesus, then these two marks must be evident in your life. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love for other believers around you. As hard as that might be at times, friends, that is the marks of belonging to God. We love because he first loved us is the motto of the Christian life. And it was the motto of the believers in Ephesus. Paul knew these people were true believers because these two marks were evident in their lives. And so for this reason, Paul says, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That is why Paul constantly prays and gives thanks for his friends in Ephesus because he could evidently see they were Christians and that God was at work in them. But despite the very encouraging marks of true conversion in their lives, Paul knew there was something lacking. And from verses 17 to 23, we see what Paul's prayer is. So what is Paul's prayer? His prayer is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. What Paul prays and what he wants for the Ephesians is to know God better. And isn't it interesting that Paul wants them to know and understand more? He wants them to grow in their knowledge of God. Now you hear now and again that Christians talk about not really wanting to have an in-depth study of the Bible. Just a little bit, not too much. It'll do me fine. They're quite happy having a fluffy and a light kind of knowledge of the Bible. Never really getting to know God better through his word than wrestling with it and trying to grasp it more fully and deeply. They don't really want to be challenged and don't want to have to think too much. Well, friends, is that what Paul thinks here? It isn't, is it? He sees the Ephesians' greatest need is to understand more, not less. It doesn't matter how long we've been Christians, there is always room to know God more. Paul wants his friends to grow in the knowledge of God And his prayer is that God may grant the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, to lead them in that knowledge of God. Now, he's not praying that they may receive again the Holy Spirit because they've already been sealed by him, as we can see in verse 13. So it's not some kind of second blessing. He's praying that the spirit who they've already been sealed by would do his illuminating work in their lives so they would see more clearly, so they would know God more. That is Paul's prayer for them. And it should be our prayer for us as well. Because often, like the Ephesians, our perspective can be blurred by the things going on around us. And we don't see as clearly at times because all we can see is the visible things in front of us. We also need the Spirit to do his illuminating work in our lives and to shine the light of gospel understanding in our hearts. We need that as much as the Ephesians, don't we? Because often our perspective of spiritual realities can be blurred by the physical realities of here and now, by the way things look here and now. And so we see Paul's purpose in praying in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He prays that God may grant them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened that you may know. Paul prays that God might shine into the hearts of the Ephesians and help them see more clearly. Somebody I know said this, you won't see 
the things Paul wants us to see here if you go to Specsavers and get new glasses. They will be no help to you. God needs to open the eyes of our hearts. He needs to shine the light of his understanding on us that, they, that we may know the certainty of these things. Whether we feel these things or not, we need to know they are still realities, don't we? And only the Lord can truly open our eyes as we pray for it. What Paul wants the Ephesians to see and to know more fully and clearly is two invisible realities, two things that are very true but invisible, but nevertheless realities. Well, the first invisible reality Paul wants his readers to see and to know more clearly is the hope of our calling. Look at verse 18 again. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now hope like faith and love for the brothers is characteristic of the Christian. We hope in Christ, verse 12. But this hope is not an uncertain hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not hope in the sense that I hope the weather will be uh, nice the rest of this week. There's massive uncertainty with that, especially here in Scotland, isn't there? You wish it were true. And you hope it would happen, but really, you know, it's never going to happen. Well, the hope the Christian has isn't like that at all. It's the hope of something that is absolutely certain. It's definitely going to happen. And nothing will stop it from happening because it's something God has said will happen and has promised. We see in verses 11 to 14 of the hope we have of an inheritance in Christ. But here we also have the hope to which he has called us. Well, what is the hope which God has called us to? Well, there are many things, but let me point out one from this chapter. Look at verse 4 again. Verse 4, Paul writes, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Friends, I wonder when you look at your Christian life now, does it look holy and blameless to you. Probably like myself, when you look at your own Christian life, you despair at times because you see anything but holiness and blamelessness. All you see is your sinfulness. When we look at our own lives, we can be like Elijah's servant from 2 Kings 6 who despaired and feared. All he cried out was, what shall we do? Well, Elijah did the best thing that he could do for his servant and that was pray for him. Oh Lord, he said, Open his eyes so that he may see. And the Lord opened his eyes that he might see the great provision that he had made for him. And friends, we can be like that at times, can't we? I know I'm, I'm exactly like that when I look at my own Christian life. When I look at my own Christian life, there's absolutely nothing impressive, significant, strong or powerful about it. I despair because of the lack of holiness and blamelessness that's there. And I suspect that you feel the same. To us, that's the reality. That's all we seem to see at times, isn't it? What shall we do? We might shout out and say along with Elijah's servant. Well, friends, here's an encouragement for you. What Paul would say is, he would say, you have to do absolutely nothing. It's already been done for you, he would say. And he would pray that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened to see the hope that we have been called to. And here's the hope that you have, Christian. One day you will stand before God 
spotless and blameless, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. One day, friends, things will not be the way they are now in this life. The hope we have and that God has called us to is that one day there will be no more sin, suffering, evil and death, but there will be one day life. One day, friends, all our tears and pain in this life will be wiped away. One day we won't feel utter despair as we look at our own lives and see our sinfulness, unholiness, and one day we won't despair because of the lack of Christ-likeness that we see. John writes in Revelation 21, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. That's the hope that Paul wants the Ephesians to have clear in their minds and hearts and it's a certain hope because God has promised it would happen and God never lies and always keeps his promises. And friends, this is what he's called us to as well. That is the hope of our calling. One of the great hopes of being a Christian is knowing that one day we will be without sin. Isn't that greatly encouraging? Despite how things look now, we have a great hope for the future. And just notice what Paul uh, goes on to say at the end of verse uh, 18. We are, we are a glorious inheritance for the Lord. Just as we have an inheritance <clears throat> in the Lord, as we see in the first section, so we who hope in Christ are a glorious inheritance for God. How encouraging that must have been for uh, the Ephesians who had probably been rejected by friends and family because they had walked away from their old life of worshipping Artemis and practising dark magic arts. They would have been called traitors, looked down upon, despised and cast out. But yet here Paul says in reality they were a glorious inheritance for the Lord, a holy people, a prized possession I read this in one of my commentaries in Ephesians, that God should set such a high value on a community of sinners rescued from perdition and still bearing too many traces of their former state might well seem too incredible were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ as from the beginning he chose them in Christ. As a consequence then, Paul prays that his readers might appreciate the extraordinary value which God places on them. He views them as in his beloved son and estimates them accordingly. And this is true of all believers who are in Christ. Well, secondly, we can see that Paul prays that they may know God's immeasurable power. So far, Paul has prayed that the Ephesians might know God better by knowing the hope to which he has called them. Now in verse 19, he wants them to know God's immeasurable power power towards those who believe and what he wants them to know of this power is the immeasurable greatness of it and to show us this and to help us see and understand it more clearly Paul points out three things quickly and we'll look at these quickly firstly we are pointed to the resurrection of Christ look at verse 19 in the beginning of verse 20 that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead, he used when you became 
a believer. Again, as we see in chapter 2, we are dead, but God made us alive. How? Because the same resurrection power that he used to raise Christ from the dead is the same power that he used to raise you from the dead. But friends, notice the present tense of this. This power is at work in us now. Paul says resurrection power is at work in you. So friends, what is it that keeps you going today? What helps you persevere as a believer today in the midst of all the pressures and the temptations that come our way? What keeps you standing firm in your faith right now? Well, Paul tells us here it took all the resurrection power of God to save you and it takes all the resurrection power of God to sustain you and keep you believing in Jesus today. You can persevere today as a believer because of the measurable power of God at work in you today. Secondly, Paul points us to Christ's supreme rule and reign, verse 20 and 21. Paul tells the Ephesians that Christ they have been united to is the supreme ruler of the unseen realm and heavenly places, and he reigns and rules over all authorities, and he has a supreme name which is above every name. Christ has been raised and seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What does this mean? Well, friends, let me ask you, does it look like Christ is ruling and reigning now? Can you see Jesus sitting at the right hand? of God ruling and reigning. You can't, can you? For the Ephesians, all they heard and could see was a massive Artemis idol and temple. There was one big name, one big authority, and one big power in Ephesus at the time who seemed to rule and reign and have authority over everything. On the surface, it didn't seem as if Christ was ruling and reigning supreme. It looked like the complete opposite. But Paul says here to the Ephesians, there is no need to be intimidated by this or feel fear because what is seen by the naked eye is not how things really are. He's saying there is one big name, one big authority and one big power is not seated in some man-made temple in Ephesus, but is seated on his throne in the heavenly places next to God the Father. Christ is the supreme ruler. He is the sovereign king of all creation. And that's very reassuring to hear, isn't it, today? And we need reminded of this often because when we look at the world, when we turn the telly on and watch the news, when we see how church is going and how little progress we seem to be making, we can often have many questions, can't we? Where is God? Is he really in control? Does God really rule and reign and have authority in this world? To the naked eye at times, it doesn't look like it, does it? It seems like the complete opposite at times. It seems like Satan has free reign to do whatever he wants. That ISIS mob seem to be sweeping across the world and literally getting away with murder and causing terror everywhere. Wars and rumours of wars are breaking news. Governments allowing anti-God things to be passed as law. Christians are marginalised and persecuted. Secularism seems to be sweeping through society and even some churches are walking away from biblical Christianity. Is Jesus really ruling and reigning? Is he really in control and seated on his throne? 
Because it doesn't seem like it at times on the surface, does it? So is Jesus really ruling and reigning in this world? Well, friends, Paul says here a resounding yes. Christ is ruling and reigning. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Christ rules and reigns supremely and eternally above everything. Far above all hostile powers and authorities in the heavenly places. He is the one with the true power and authority. It's not Artemis then, and it's certainly not the Artemis of today. Everything is under his rule and authority. Nothing isn't, not even Satan. Isn't that greatly encouraging for us today? Christ is the true king who is seated on his throne and he rules and reigns over everything. He is the ruler of everything despite how out of control and fragile things seem at times. And because of this reality, we are able to stand firm in our faith because we are in the one whose rule and reign is supreme. We can trust, we can continue to trust our ruling, reigning Lord Jesus. Finally, look at what Paul says in uh, verses 22 and 23 and where we see the body of Christ. Paul writes, And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of of him who fills all in all. Because all these things have been given to Christ and because he is the head of the church and the church is his body and has been united to him, all these things belong to the church also. And so we being part of the church and being a member of his body means all these privileges are ours because the church and Christ are closely connected. One commentator said, the universe is being constrained in its course, bent in new directions for the good of the bride of Christ. He goes on to say, as much as our perceptions may seem to deny this truth, the battles that rage, the leaders that rise, the events that occur, do not thwart God's agenda. History relentlessly marches forward towards the triumph of the church of Jesus Christ. God is using all things, including the tragedies of a fallen world, to shape and reshape the world for the sake of her. The whole of creation is being conformed to the purposes that serve the glory of Christ's church. Again, how reassuring and comforting for the Ephesians in the midst of all their doubts, fears, and uncertainties to read and understand what Paul here is praying for them to know. They are the body of the resurrected, ruling, reigning, and glorified Lord who is the name which is above every name and has complete authority over every name, authority, dominion and power. And because they are part of the church of Christ, his body, they too share in all these privileges. They are where Christ is at the right hand of God, not physically as such, but spiritually. As the body of Christ, they share in all the blessings and privileges of him. This is what it means to be part of the church to be a member of the body of Christ. This is what Paul prayed for his discouraged, down and disheartened friends in Ephesus, that they might see the hope to which they have been called to, that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened, that they may know God better, 
and see more clearly these unseen realities they have in Christ and know the hope which they have in the immeasurable greatness of his power towards them who believe the body of Christ, his glorious inheritance. So friends, let's begin to pray and continue to pray for each other the way Paul prays for his brothers and sisters here so that we might be strengthened and encouraged to keep going despite how things look, feel and seem at times as we are reminded constantly of the hope that we have in Christ. Amen. Let's give thanks to God. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Father, we thank you so much for Paul's words here in his letter to the Ephesian churches. Father, we thank you so much that Christ is the supreme ruler, that he is seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning. And Father, we can trust him despite how fragile and out of control life seems at times. Father, we thank you for the, the hope that you've called us to. And Father, we pray that we, you would help us to keep, continue to pray and keep praying that our eyes would be opened each day that we may know you better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.